here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to remind you about the Deep Dive Workshop Series we've got coming up from the 31st of January until the 4th of April, in which we will have 10 amazing speakers who will be presenting about various aspects of craft, as well as the business side of publishing. Now, after each presentation, we'll host an hour workshop in which you'll have discussions and do writing exercises so that you can learn to apply what you've learned. You'll be sorted into a new group each week, so you'll get a lot of different feedback on your work, while also making new writing friends who can potentially become beta readers or writing group friends. If you're in a different time zone, don't worry. The recording of each session will go out the next day, and you'll be able to connect with other writers 
in your time zone so that you can set up your own breakaway sessions at times that suit you using the workshop prompts we'll send on. Now, if you want to kick off 2023 with a new commitment to your writing, this is the perfect way to do it. Head over to theshitaboutwriting.com and go to the deep dive page to sign up. The first 15 people to register today will get a $100 discount. Hi everyone, welcome to another Books with Hooks. Today we have two authors joining us, Jessica and Kate, and Carly and Cece are going to be looking at their query letters. So first up is Jessica. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, for our listeners, we are recording this on Thanksgiving and Jessica is actually working and it's Thanksgiving and she's still joining us. So we really, really appreciate that. Okay, so Jessica, can you begin by reading us your query letter? Sure. I'm getting over the flu, so hopefully I will make it through with, without problems. All right. So dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I'm a big fan of all three of you and have learned so much from the podcast, book club, and the virtual retreat. Thank you for all that you do. Down We Fall is my 98,000 word multi-point of view women's fiction novel that combines a similar grief reaction as in the memoir Wild by Cheryl Strayed with the loss and self-discovery in Jill Santopolo's More Than Words and Marissa De La Santos's I'd Give Anything. Bryn Ellison never knows if the next jump will be her last. On the outside, she's a composed and accomplished medical student, but on the inside, she's screaming, becoming more and more desperate to feel connected to a world she holds at arm's length. Tormented by the loss of her mother and a horrific accident that she believes was her fault, Bryn secrets away every chance she gets to skydive, bungee, or base jump. The higher the risk, the more she's able to actually feel something. Jacob, a fellow medical student, has been enamored with Bryn since they first met. Just as he convinces her to turn their friendship into romance, he invites her on a group trip home to meet his family. To Bryn, he's the perfect guy, but she's not sure she's capable of romantic feelings. That is, until she meets his older brother, Caleb, and the intense attraction they share tells her that she had been wrong. The two can't help but gravitate toward each other, despite neither wanting to hurt Jacob. But when tragedy strikes the brother's family and Jacob discovers their betrayal, Caleb is torn between Bren and family loyalty, and Bren risks returning to the one thing that had always allowed her some solace and escape, even if that means escalating the danger to even higher levels than before. By day, I'm a physician working in a large academic teaching hospital. By night, I'm either still stuck at the hospital or I'm home with my husband and four little ones, two human, two with fur, on an unending loop of editing or adding to my next novel. I am part of a writing group formed via Women's Fiction Writers Association. A sample of this manuscript won Best Manuscript Submission at the Atlanta Writers Conference in 2021, awarded by an associate editor of a Simon & Schuster imprint. Although published in scientific journals, this is my first piece for the literary world. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. Wonderful, Jessica. Thank you so much. Okay, we're now going to hand over to Cece. Thank you so much for that very excellent reading, Jessica, and thank you for joining us on Thanksgiving. Okay, I want to get to the points. First of all, I don't know if you know this about me. I love skydiving. Like, love, love, love skydiving. Everything is actually. Know. My favorite thing is hang gliding, but skydiving is definitely a second. I've never done base jumping. Don't plan to do that. Do not enjoy bungee jumping. Only done that once. But yes, I love jumping from very high altitudes. I have the best time. It's very weird because otherwise my personality is just very, very like stay at home and read books. So this was a lot of fun for me to read is what I'm saying, right? I was like, oh, okay. I get that her motivations to jump aren't the happiest, but it's still really interesting. So you've you've managed to like present a character in a query letter 
that is layered. That is really hard to do. And that was excellent. So excellent job. Few notes. One thing, and this I am assuming based on what I read in your query letter and based on the tone that I'm sensing that your novel is going to have, that this is unintentional. If it is intentional, keep it. But if it's not intentional and I'm right, I would edit this thing that I'm about to say. Just as he convinces her to turn their friendship into romance. I don't think that it's your intention for him to come across as like not respecting no means no, because that's just not what the book is, right? So maybe we reframe that. Because I know that like, again, I can just tell by the tone that this is not that kind of novel. So yeah, I would just reframe that. You don't want you don't want it to seem like he's just not respecting her boundaries, that he's being pushy, that he's being aggressive, that he's being, you know, a creepy guy, because that's not who who Jacob is. Okay, so that's one note. And then the other note that I have is the major dramatic question seems a little looser than I would would want it to be. I think it's just a matter of framing. And I think that when we get to your pages and you tell me a little bit more about what's going to happen, because I'm going to ask you that, we might have a solution. It's working, but right now it feels like all these different things are happening and we have her internal conflict. Whereas I would have preferred perhaps that the web effect happen more, meaning like all the plot points come together in a way that feels completely inevitable. And now everything is just layered on top of each other. I will say though, that this is me like, I guess just being extra critical because you're here and that's our job. Our job is to essentially poke holes. Because when I read the part that she goes home to meet his family and she falls for his brother, that to me, like that is a novel I will read. Like I would absolutely read that. It sounds twisty. It sounds like there's going to be low-key family drama. Like not low-key because it's a big deal, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like it's it, it, it feels like the kind of relationship drama that I love to read about. So love the twist, would absolutely read this. Love the character. I love her already. So excellent job. Thank you so much for sharing. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. High praise indeed. Okay, Jessica, now it's your turn to come back with any questions you have, any answers you have before we move on to the actual pages. Yeah, thank you so much for the feedback. I definitely did not want Jacob to come across like that. It was more of like sensing her hesitation. You know, she's not really feeling it, but he's such a great guy. And so I will I will rework that. So thank you for that. And then, yeah, I you know, I have had 18 million iterations of this query letter and trying to figure out how much to put in, when to kind of hold back. Do I basically tell what her emotional arc is or tease that further? I, I didn't know. And with this particular query letter, I stopped pretty short. So I think we can maybe come back to this after we talk about the first chapter, because I would love to get your thoughts on that and maybe even kind of tell you where I had gone originally and where I pulled back. I love that idea. Let's absolutely do that. And that is 100% the challenge of all query letters, right? Like how much do you reveal? How much do you withhold? So so yeah, if, if she's decided, if she's going to date Jacob simply because her life is in the right place for her to date Jacob. Make it about her, you know, don't make it about him convincing her. That's the only thing I'd say. Awesome, Cece. Thank you. Okay, Jessica, do you have any more questions or or can you tell us a bit more about the opening pages? I will summarize the opening pages and then I do have several questions. Okay, so the scene opens with Bren climbing up to stand on the ledge of a bridge. You know, her heart's pounding. She's looking down into this canyon, but instead of feeling really scared, she actually feels very alive and energized compared to this numb state that she's normally in. So we're quickly told that she's wearing a harness. So this is a bungee jump. And as she's standing there about to jump, she sort of describes internally this overwhelming pull towards recklessness, and which actually is a psychological term called 
called L'Appel de Vide, which in, in French, and it translates to call of the void. And it's just this impulse toward danger that, you know, normal people can have, but they usually don't act on them. But Bren feels like ever since this tragic accident that killed her mother as a child, that, you know, she's not really been able to escape this feeling. And when she finally does jump, you know, there's this initial thrill of it, but that quickly fades into something deeper, which is her trying to connect with her mother and to feel what her mother's last moments might have been like. So when the jump is over, the guy that was helping her with the jump, you know, asked her if she enjoyed it. She says no, which takes them by surprise. And she internally expresses disappointment that the jump really isn't doing it for her anymore. And she sort of needs to up the ante to get the same feelings and level of sensations that she's after. And later when she's in her room in this little hostel, we find out that she's in medical school. And instead of going out with the class in celebration of summer break, she sneaks away to do this without telling anyone. So this is very a secretive part of her life. Then there's a knock on her door and the guy that had helped her with her jump earlier invites her to a cookout. She politely declines, but he's clearly curious about her and asks if she's jumped before, which she has. Then he asks if she skydives. She says yes. And she can tell during this conversation that he's really into this world of extreme sports and thinks she is too, but she doesn't really see herself that way. Yes, she does these things, but the reasons for doing them are very different. You know, she's not a thrill seeker. She's really looking for solace. However, when he invites her to base jump, which sort of is like taking the extreme sport thing to the most dangerous level you can, she sees that as an opportunity and agrees to go along. Wonderful, Jessica. Thank you. And I feel like I've just been diagnosed here because I cannot stand on a balcony. And even if we go to a Blue Jays game or the theatre, I cannot be anywhere that's elevated right on the balcony because I feel the void calling to me. And those are the exact words I use. And I didn't know it was actually a diagnosis. So I'm going to be Googling the crap out of this. It's a real thing. And and there's actually like, you know, scientific papers about it and everything. So you self-diagnosed. This is amazing. And, you know, people, my friends keep saying, oh, you suicidal and I'm like no I'm not suicidal but I do just want to jump every time I'm close to the edge it's it's a hell of a thing to not jump okay Cece let's hear what you thought okay so I have a lot of notes will not have time for all my notes so I'm not going to talk about the micro stuff stuff like using different fonts for text messages line breaks I, you're going to see that when you get my written notes if you have any questions reach out to me okay let's focus on big picture stuff so Jessica I think you have a perfect movie beginning. If this were a movie, this would be the right place to start because we would see the protagonist, like we would probably start with her feet on the edge of something and we would see the the fall, right? And it would be like, oh my gosh, very cinematic, immediately compelling. And then we would quickly, very quickly see her harness. So we wouldn't think anything such as death by suicide or anything like that, right? And then we would be like, okay, so why is she jumping? And we would see the people behind her. We would see them probably whispering like, Is she okay? Usually people are either scared or excited and she's neither. She's just like disassociating or something, right? So we'd have the people whispering and then we'd have maybe even voiceover with her thoughts or maybe like a flash to her mom's face. And then we'd see her jump and it would be really short and really compelling. Don't think it works as a book. It could if, again, we'll talk, but I just, I just don't think it's the right book beginning. I think it's the right movie beginning. When you write the screenplay for this, you can choose this as a starting point. It doesn't translate as well in book format. It's too internal and internal can work. I've seen novels where it's just the character by themselves at the first scene and it works. But you know what all those novels have? I'm curious about what's going to happen next in those novels. In your pages, I'm curious about what happened before 
curiosity about what happened before is great, but we also need curiosity about what's going to happen next. So we might be able to still make this work if we can find a way to weave in a curiosity seed about what's next, something to think about. But yes, just being totally honest right now, I'm curious about what happened before. One question to ask yourself that I encourage all readers to ask themselves. Carly and I are teaching a writing the perfect first five pages webinar on December 12th. And it's a question that we're going to make sure that everyone who attends is asking themselves. What do you want the reader to think at the start of your novel? In what ways do your pages confirm that and surprise them? It could be small. It could be big. It depends on the genre. The problem with this beginning is that the only thing that I can think of, actually the two things that I can think of don't work because what you could surprise the reader is making them think she's going to kill herself and then she's not actually going to kill herself. But you don't want to do that because like that's just super triggering and icky and not your novel, right? So so I can't think of... I also thought, also thought that she could be messing with the the men there. Like they think she's scared and she's kind of like letting them think she's scared. And then actually she's super like a, like a daredevil brave person, but she wouldn't be able to be disassociating if she's going to mess with people. So that doesn't work either. So truth is I have no idea how to make this scene work with story forward curiosity, but you might not even agree with my note, which is totally fine because you're the creator of this world. One adjacent note, which you might be able to, to adopt whether or not you agree with this part of my note so far, is you mentioned her mom, in my opinion, way too many times. The explanation of the connection between her mom and what she does is on the second paragraph, I believe, or third, or it's like right on the first page. It's, you know, they've been constant since those early days after her mother's accident, where she can still remember the feeling of pressing her hands against the cold glass window of her 11th floor hospital room, her head bandaged, wondering what she would do if the glass suddenly shattered. And then we have four more references to her mom and how this is all about her mom. I don't think it's in your best interest to spell it out so clearly. Like I do this and I've been doing this since the accident with my mom. You know, I just think that it's, it's giving away all the explanation as opposed to making me curious. And I wonder if there's an opportunity to make it into a curiosity seed. Don't know. I again, I'm mindful because these are such big things. I don't want to make this into into something that it's not. But when it comes to story forward stuff, perhaps something that we could up with the hot date question because I'm assuming the hot date is Jacob. So maybe something like that, like her interiority, could be could be focused on that. I don't know. I don't know. I want to hear from you. I want to you know. I'm here to brainstorm if you want to. I just I think that you have a really great beginning, but I just don't think it's absolutely phenomenal, you know, and, and we do live in a world where absolutely phenomenal is, is necessary. And speaking of her interiority, this is a general interiority note for everyone. If there's a knock on the door, your protagonist is supposed to have theories about who is on the other side. The theories can be wild. It can be something like, even though it was completely irrational, she thought that it might be her mother. I know she's not actually going to think this, or it could be, oh my gosh, could it be rooms? I don't know, but there's no such thing as a knock on the door and then their mind is blank. Who could it be? human beings theorize in specifics. Okay, I will stop talking now. Thank you, Cece. Okay, so before we go to Jessica, something that Cece just said has is, is really resonated with me. And it's a question I have for you, Jessica, in terms of the character arc. How important is it that she's aware up front why she's behaving the way she is? Because that makes her incredibly self-aware. And in terms of character arc, you know, if you begin with a character who isn't as self-aware, but during the course of the story, they start to realize 
realize why they're doing the things that they're doing and it becomes part of their journey and part of their character arc and how they change, you know, that becomes a bit more compelling for the reader because in the beginning, the reader's like, why is this character doing the stuff that they're doing? But of course, the character themselves, you know, shouldn't know the reason why themselves. They should just feel compelled to behave in this way. So that's just my my question to you. How important is it for her to be that self-aware at the beginning of the novel? So to kind of get to both of y'all's points, which thank you so much, by the way. So it was funny because I actually had beta reader. I originally wrote this scene and I just said her. I want to feel what she felt. And and you don't actually even know who I'm talking about. It never mentions her mother at all. And so you, you're like, what in the world is she doing? And why is she doing this? And who is she thinking of? And what happened to that person? And I was much more vague. And my writing group had, had mentioned that vagueness on to that degree, and maybe I just didn't do it as well as I needed to, was like driving them crazy. <laughs> like I needed to get to link it a little bit more and ground them a little bit more. And, you know, why are you hiding the mother thing up front? And so that's actually why I went back and, and redid it. And maybe there's a way to kind of compromise between those two things because and then to Bianca, to your point about how important is that in the character arc, when I first was writing this novel, I didn't actually know why she was doing this. This is actually based on a real person. And so I was thinking through this, trying to like work it out for myself. And then whenever I kind of like thought, you know, here's what it is, it was more that I took the character arc a step further and it was more of like, it's no longer working for her. And she's trying to escalate things as a maladaptive response rather than deal with like the grief and the guilt and the trauma of what happened. And so sort of the climax of the story is her realizing that this is futile and she really has to deal with the actual trauma and guilt of it before she's going to ever be able to move on. Okay, so just before I hand back to Cece, who I know will want to say some things about the difference between curiosity and confusion in the early pages with regards to your beta reader's feedback. So what I want to say is remember that the character at the midpoint of a novel can have some kind of realization that then leads to the rest of the character arc you're talking about. So it could be that at the beginning, she's doing this kind of behavior and she really has no idea why. She Maybe other people in her life kind of suspect, but she hasn't seen it yet. And you can have it that, you know, at the midpoint mark, somewhere in Act 2, she realizes this either through a therapist or someone talks to her and then she goes on to the rest of the things that that you were speaking about. And I certainly think that that would intrigue the reader a lot more than having a super self-aware character up front. Because remember, really self-aware characters generally have their shit together. You know, the more self-aware we are as human beings, the kind of more we have our shit together. And we don't want a character in the beginning who's got their shit together because then why are we going on this journey with them? You know, so I really think it will be helpful if she isn't quite as aware of that and that becomes something she learns. Cece, in terms of, you know, you don't want to frustrate your readers in the opening pages by alluding to something too much and they feel manipulated, but you want to plant the curiosity seeds. So what's your take on that? I want to first backtrack and say that I agree with everything you just said, Bianca, about the self-awareness. You nailed it. It's true for characters. However, for people, I am very self-aware. I don't have anything together, let alone my shit. <laughs> but yeah, very self-aware human. Okay, back to the question. Jessica, thank you for saying that about your beta readers. That's really important feedback. What I think is that it's it's a spectrum, right? Like you were just using a her 
and giving no context. And now you're saying her mom, and there are literal lines going, was her mom feeling this weightlessness? Was her is, is her mom in the air with her? So it's about calibrating. So that's one thing. But it's also about that interiority happening against a backdrop of something that also keeps us curious in terms of like her interacting with someone or something else that's going on. An idea I had, don't know if it works because I know she's not taking calls, but an idea I had is that she could answer a phone call and there are people around her, right? Because you don't, you don't bungee jump in alone. There's obviously people in line and the instructor guy and et cetera. She could answer the call and say, I'm actually just pulling up to my garage and I can't talk right now. And then when she hangs up, maybe, you know, some guy in line or something says something like, oh, were you lying to your boyfriend? Does he not know you do this? I, I don't I don't know what it could be. But the sheer fact that she would be lying about where she is and not no one knowing where she is, which you do tell us, but right up front, that alone could be an interesting backdrop to the interiority, which would will calibrate, right? Like it won't be a vague her or a this is my mother. This is why I do this. Because it is also about making sure that your scene has enough layers. Your opening scene needs to be doing so much heavy lifting in a way that feels totally subtle and seamless. I, I know that these expectations are bonkers, by the way. Like, I'm totally aware. But you're a doctor. You're used to bonkers expectations, right? Like, so so this must be a breeze for you. Well, not a breeze. But, but you get it because, you know, a doctor. Yes. High expectations. Different part of my brain, though, for this world. <laughs> All right. Well, I did have a couple of other questions. I guess for one, I, you know, just back to the sort of the query letter itself. Are you all hearing or seeing alternate names for women's fiction now already? Wait, do you mean the genre? Oh, Carly, do you want to speak to this? Or I don't know if you're the positioning queen. Yeah, I can speak to it a little bit. So in terms of the, the women's fiction as a category, I think that's a really interesting question, Jessica. I don't believe we have repositioned it entirely. So I do think you can use it. I don't think that you need to think of something alternate unless you just want to say kind of commercial fiction or upmarket, you know, like wherever you imagine it kind of fitting in that spectrum. I agree with you. It's a problematic term. I think a lot of people agree it's a problematic term. However, it is still used around the industry as a marker and a signpost for who the potential audience is. So therefore we are still using the term. So yeah, we haven't we haven't found our way through that journey yet, but when I do, I will let you know. Jessica for years I had in my manuscript wish list like she doesn't CC doesn't believe in the term women's fiction, but for the sake of clarity, that is what she is looking for because yeah, it's what I like to read, but it's it's silly that there's no men's fiction, right? Like so men become default and then women become niche, which is again very silly. But I think you can still call it that. You you don't have to if you don't want to, but it's I will still understand what you mean, though. And unfortunately, because of that, because of the clarity around that term, because I Im- immediately know what you mean, it might just be the best term to use. Perfect. Thank you. And as far as my comps, I kind of threw in a weird one, but I thought it kind of captured the spirit of it with Wild by Cheryl Strayed. I just wanted feedback on that because that was sort of a last minute addition. It did throw me off. I didn't really see how it fit, to be perfectly honest, but I am someone who... If the plot paragraph hooks me, I'll figure out comps with, you know, with my client when I'm working with them. Not to say that you shouldn't focus on comps because comps are super, super important. But yeah, I, I, it did throw me off. I mean, I don't, I don't know enough about your story to know if it does fit, of course, but it just didn't seem like the right comp for me. But the plot paragraph is doing wonders for my curiosity, though. 
So just on that, I think Jessica's adding that to show a woman engaged in risky behavior as a result of grief. And I think that's why she's put that comp in. Is there a way to like maybe just say that, you know, in a sentence when she mentions the comp so that they know that that's the part she's going for? She could actually phrase it like you just did. However, if that's the only reason why you're using wild, I would just let the plot paragraph do that heavy lifting, you know, and and use a different comp because they're just totally different books. I, I get the the motivation of the character, right? But but the plot paragraph already tells me that that's what she's doing. She's engaging in risky behavior. The first line tells me that. Perhaps, Jessica, you want to phone into our Ask for Comps helpline and tell our bookseller a bit about it and see if she can come up with comps that are better suited, you know, to, to fiction. That's a great idea because I had trouble finding that piece of it, which I think is a huge part of, you know, my, my story. So, And then another question I had was, you know, the, the best manuscript submission I know it probably doesn't hurt to add it, but is that is that even a big deal enough at one of these conferences to include and waste real precious real estate? Because I feel like I'm already on a little bit on the longer end. I would keep it. I think it's impressive. Like you said, it will not hurt. I would be very proud about that. So I would definitely keep it. And since we are running up on time, I would love to see this when, whenever you're ready. I just need to know what's going to happen with Caleb and, and, and Bryn. Is it Bryn? I don't remember the, the other brother's name now. But I need to know who, what's going to happen to her. Like, guys, I'm very curious. No, Bryn is the protagonist. Wait, who, what's the, the brother's name? Jacob. I forget the brother's name. Jacob. No, but the other brother. <laughs> oh, we don't know the other brother. Jacob Caleb. and Caleb. Yeah. Caleb. I need to know what's going to happen. Is Bryn going to choose Jacob? Is she going to choose Caleb? Is she going to choose neither? I need to know what's going to happen. It gets real dramatic. And yes, absolutely. I would love that. Wonderful. Well, that's always wonderful when our agents request more pages. So that's awesome for you, Jessica. Thank you so much for joining us on the show and enjoy the rest of your day and don't work too hard. And thanks again for joining us on Thanksgiving. Thank you so much, you all. I really appreciate all the feedback. All right, that's it from Jessica. Now we're moving on to Kate. Kate, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you all so much for having me. And I'm going to apologize in advance. I've got a little bit of congestion. So if I sound huskier than normal, not that you'd know what my normal is, that's what's going on. It sounds fabulous. So it's all good. And thanks as well for joining us on Thanksgiving. Okay, could you read us your query letter, please? Sure. Dear Carly Waters, The Other Matilda is a 100,000-word historical novel based closely on true events in 12th century England, mixed with a tongue-in-cheek critique of modern politics. Princess by birth, empress by marriage, and sole heir to the Kingdom of England, Matilda is more fit to rule than anyone. Just ask her. When her cocky numbskull cousin Stephen usurps her throne in the wake of her father's sudden death, Empress Matilda vows to get it back and punish the cowardly nobles who enabled Stephen's theft. But Matilda has forgotten what makes Stephen so powerful his radiant, adorable wife, the other Matilda. Across decades of civil war, the Empress chooses to wage a war for her own kingdom, while the other Matilda is happier as the power behind her husband's throne. Each woman dangerously misunderstands and underestimates the other. When at last they come face to face, they must both reckon with what it means and what it costs to be a woman of power in the 12th century. To find a way beyond total war, Empress Matilda must learn how to wield a strength far fiercer than a throne or a sword. Bringing a refreshingly modern voice to medieval historical fiction, it combines the irreverent humor of Hulu's The Great with the layered portrait of 12th century women found in Lauren Groff's Matrix. Empress Matilda has long received short shrift in the few novels that mention her, cast too often simply as a harpy or a tragic paramour. She was a complex woman larger than life and before her time. The other Matilda is my attempt to give her her due in fiction, warts and all. It would be my debut novel. Thank you for your consideration. Wonderful, Kate. Thank you so much. Okay, now we're going to Carly. Carly, what was your take on the query letter? 
All right. So a new thing we've been doing on the podcast is saying how long query letters are. So this one, 283 words. And so I give you tons of props for how much information, especially in kind of like a world building type of book, it's historical. So there's a certain element of world building here that you accomplished in 283 words. So, so well done for that. But really, I mean, to me, this is just an excellent mix of the kind of historical topic, but making it so relevant. And you're also very aware that you're doing it. And, and this comes through in the style of the query letter, as well as the actual pages themselves. So I, I like how you accomplish that. I think this is so smooth and it's easy to look at this and and think that it was easy. I know it's really hard. <laughs> you probably worked very hard on this to accomplish this. And so I think you I think you did a really, really great job. I loved that TV show, The Great. I think it was a really, really fun, cheeky show. And, and I agree that the tone is very similar to what you're trying to accomplish here. I love Lauren Groff's The Matrix. I love everything Lauren Groff does. But The Matrix, definitely her most recent book and, and, and such a great book. So I think overall, my questions here in terms of the query are, is this a dual POV? Because our title kind of alludes to the fact like the other Matilda, and we also explain like, you know, the other Matilda is kind of happier behind the throne, you know, like we know that she exists, and she's living a life. I just don't know how much we get into her life is a dual POV. How do we access that knowledge? I'm really curious about that piece. And I'm also curious, and it's not something you have to necessarily address in the query letter, but I am interested in how you're going to be handling these gaps in time because you have across decades, plural, of civil war, right? And so Lauren Groff's novel is more literary than yours in terms of what I kind of imagine your book to be. Obviously, I haven't read it all. So yeah, she's handling huge gaps of time for sure. And a lot of historical novels do because things take a long time to happen sometimes when letters are traveling back and forth between countries, you know, as you said, decades of civil war. So I guess I'm just kind of curious about how we're going to be keeping up with the stakes and the tension and the drama when we're crossing huge decades of time. That piece is kind of interesting to me. A comp that you didn't use, which I don't think you need to, but I was kind of curious. You know, I think Philip Gregory is obviously one of the queens of historical fiction written in a modern, accessible way. I don't think you need to add her in, but I think you're on par there in terms of like what you're trying to accomplish in a very self-aware historical context kind of situation. So so yeah, no, I think it's I think this is really interesting, but I'm mostly, as I said, curious to hear you speak a little bit about the kind of the structure and, and the dual POV or, or all of that sort of bit. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, Kate, this is your opportunity to ask questions or give Carly feedback. Yeah, well, thank you. I really appreciate that feedback. And the dual POV thing was something I was thinking of as I was rereading this over and over again to prepare for today. I realized it really wasn't clear. And this morning, I almost wondered when I was reading it again, did it seem like there was something like I was getting at some kind of weird like personality split? And that's not what I was trying to imply. And that's not, that didn't come across, I hope, because it is two different people. So yes, there, it's a bit of a dual POV and I'm still, I'm kind of in the final editing stages. I'm still actually trying to figure out if I want to just cut the other POV altogether or make it much more even. Because right now I'd say it's probably 2080 with the other Matilda, which is kind of maybe an unusual weight to give to a second POV. So I think when I sort of make that final decision, I'm going to have to make the query letter kind of reflect what is the balance. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's that makes perfect sense. It's it's so hard for me to advise on that at this stage, obviously, because we're because I haven't seen any, haven't seen the full manuscript. I always worry when we only have twenty percent of another voice that it's just being used as a manipulative scaffolding type of tool to like get the reader to where you want them to be. So I'm always pretty much like it needs to be in one POV or it needs to be like equal. 
or nearly equal, in my opinion. It's just because I, I I'm rarely proven wrong. <laughs> it's not to say you can't do it. It's just as I said, it's it's rare. I think that it feels natural to the reader because sometimes we just as a reader we think we're on a journey with one character, and then somebody else kind of comes in later on, and we're like, what is the purpose of this? Once we've established our, who our main character is, we the reader can see this coming a mile away, right? Like so, yeah, that's kind of my worry. Not to say it can't be done, but I'm curious as you as you polish this up, kind of where you land on it. Yeah, thank you. And I think my my leaning right now is to actually just add a lot more of the other Matilda, because I think what I want to really get across with my sort of themes are the balance between their two perspectives. And I really want there to be equal weight to the other perspective as well. So I think I'm going to try to really add a lot more of her voice. So that's my plan. And then I'll make that come across clearly in the letter when I'm done. I think something I just also noticed when I was rereading this, I didn't really include any personalization as to you or why I'm querying you. And so does that, I mean, I certainly that seems unusual, but how do you receive that? Yeah, I mean, the personalization stuff is always kind of something where it makes me feel like, quote unquote, chosen. But by you emailing me, you are therefore choosing me. You know what I mean? It would be different if you just addressed it like, dear Mr. Agent X, or you know what I mean? Like, obviously, it's like you you know how to spell my name, you wrote my name. So I get all of that. You could say like, when you when you talk about, you know, the great or, or the matrix and the comps, you could say like, I know you're a fan of the great because I'm sure I've tweeted about it. Or I know you've read the matrix. I know you're a Lauren Groff fan. Like if you do know that about me, which I'm telling you now, so you know, that would be the type of thing you would, would include. The other thing I just realized when you said that is that you also didn't include anything but yourself. <laughs> so that's probably why this query letter is on the more succinct side. But I was so blown away by the concept. Like this is what happens, right? It's like agents, we just, we always gravitate towards what is interesting to us. And as soon as something hooks us, we are just like blind to anything else that could be useful or interesting, right? I always say like the query's job is to hook an agent and it doesn't really matter what you do otherwise, right? There's lots of rules that can be broken. And I think you did the job here of hooking me because you wrote a great query letter and this is an interesting book to me and, and it spoke to me. Well, thank you. And yeah, I think as to your next question about the gaps in time, that's something that I certainly hope comes across well. I think as I'm editing, I'm really trying to make it much less sort of like summary of five years passing and much more episodes in this person's life as her perspective evolves. So, you know, time will tell whether that's working or not. But it is kind of challenging, certainly, because the book begins in 1128 and there's flashbacks all the way back to 1109 and it ends in the 1150s. Mm-hmm. So, you know, about 25 years plus flashbacks. That's quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it can be done. Like the Matrix, like she covers huge swaths of time. So definitely, it's definitely doable. And it's very common, as I said, like Philip Gregory does this, right? It's like we're covering a character, a fictional character's existence, right? And so there's so much to pack into there. And especially when we're tackling themes, you know, being a woman during that time and, and power and, you know, all of these other things. As soon as we need in a historical novels, we need a lot of time to be able to use the historical context, use what's happened in history to kind of add that fictional lens on top to build out that life, right? That's kind of one of the beautiful things about historical novels, right? We get to use that as a, as a launch pad. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think finally, I'll just say thank you for reminding me of Philippa Gregory because I haven't read her in so long. I really probably should read more of her books. Um, I don't, I don't, I haven't read a lot of her books. I went through a phase where in the early, like when we were slowly adopting to audiobooks, I went through a phase where like I listened to every single one of her audiobooks and I haven't read any of her new books. So now it's reminding me to get back into her too. Yeah. I always see her on the shelves. I mean, she's prolific. So there'd be a lot of places to jump in. I think that's it for me from questions. So thank you so much for all that feedback. 
Wonderful. Just a reminder that when you are having a dual POV novel, you know, it, it needs to be that the novel that you envision cannot be told without both of those voices. And so you need to kind of relook at how you're telling the novel, not just to flesh out the other POV kind of for the reader, etc., to make it as compelling. You need to really sit down with your intention and say, why is this other POV integral to the telling of this novel? What am I unable to achieve if I do not include this other POV? So, you know, just guard against, I'm not saying you're doing this, but this is for our listeners, guard against just throwing in extra words in one POV just to kind of balance out the scales, that intentionality there needs to be so important. And remember that when you do dual POV, all the things that are in a single POV novel have to be there. You know, what is the character's want? What is their need? What is their misbelief? What are the stakes tied to it? What is their character arc? So, you know, it's double like the kind of work in terms of developing each character and having an inciting incident for each of their POVs, for having a key event for each of their POVs. So you've really, because you're going to be doing that much more work, you have to be 100% clear in your mind why that character's POV is essential to your novel. Okay, so Kate, can you give us an indication of what's in those opening pages? Sure. So it begins in France in 1128, where Empress Matilda is having a horrible time at her own wedding feast. She's making her way through the messy drunken party that's happening in the castle's great hall, and she thinks back longingly to better days when she was an empress in Germany. Her father, the King of England, is present and quite drunk. He has married her to a much younger count for political reasons, and she sees her new husband as beneath her. This husband is also quite drunk. Matilda decides to taunt her new husband about their age gap. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay, Carly, what was your take on that? All right. So the query letter, I think, really established so much of what's happening here in a great way, right? We we knew from the query letter there was going to be a modern tone. Like we understood she was going to be a modern woman for the times. And so I think we really saw that in these pages, which was great. When I was a kid, I really loved the Royal Diaries series from like the 90s and 2000s about like how all the different royal families in the world kind of made their way from that like YA perspective. And so I always loved doing these deep dives back into these moments in time, right, where women were put in really complicated positions. And I always love books about power struggles, which I think at the heart, like that's kind of what this is. And especially, I think what you're trying to do here, what I perceive that you're trying to do is show the similarities between the limitations of a woman in that world and the limitations of a woman in our modern world, right? And so that's what I'm seeing that you're doing. And I think you're doing it really well in terms of like, this is five pages. So I barely am like, you know, getting into this, but I see, I feel like I see you, I guess that's what I'm trying to tell you. Like I see you and I think that's what you're doing. Then you're doing it really well. There's a certain level of empathy also that you create here. You know, she, she's witnessing the servants, like she's seeing people, right. And she's seeing them for who they are as people. And that's something that a lot of kind of royals wouldn't do back then. So the bit about the kind of age gap between her and her husband, because that's the main kind of conflict, I guess, if you want to say, of our, of our first five pages, is she's basically saying, like, he's a teenager, right? And she's like, I'm a woman. And so we're figuring out how she is going to, she's going to deal with this. And I think you do it pretty well in terms of explaining their ages, because you never want to be like, 
so-and-so character is 15 and so-and-so character is like 27, right? So I, I feel like you did a good job of explaining it. You know, she, you make him say kind of like that he's 15 and she says like, I was a widow, a full grown woman. And so we eventually figure out, as I said, like she, she's 27. So there's a lot going on here that I think you're doing really well in terms of establishing that power structure is going to be the the theme that that's going to come and power, meaning she has a, a little bit of power over him because she's seen more life than him right? But that's really the only power that she has other than her like familial power, but she's kind of giving that up, right? Because she's going to be a married woman to somebody else. So anyway, I, I, I think you're playing around with a lot of really interesting things here. I like the observations that she's making. One line you said, like he was tall for his age, which would make us less look like mother and son, at least from a distance. So she's so aware of, you know, perception, and she's trying to grapple with like, how is she going to be married to to a 15 year old? And so I'm curious a little bit about the ick factor a little bit. I don't know if you want to call it that. So that's what I usually call it on the podcast. Of like, you know, what that ick factor is going to be. It's historical. This is accurate to the times. Modern readers, obviously, there's a bit of ick there in terms of how far you're going to go down that road in terms of their relations. So I'm kind of curious uh, from a reader perspective where you kind of imagine that to go. And I'm mostly curious about this other Matilda and how she's going to show up and and these sort of themes that you're getting at in terms of like the different types of lives that women can live. And if you're only going to be examining women of a certain stratosphere, meaning like these two royals, how self-aware is that going to be? And I I'm, I get the sense that you're going to be pretty self-aware about it because one of our opening scenes, like she's talking directly to a servant, which, you know, people of this level wouldn't. But yeah, no, I'm I'm really into it. I, I think it's I think it's really interesting. I, I just wonder, as I said, when we're going to meet the other Matilda. Thank you, Carly. Before we go back to Kate, I just want to say that 100% the ick factor, but that doesn't mean readers don't want to read it. Look at the success of My Dark Vanessa, Notes on a Scandal. You know, there's something to be said for readers' attraction to ick factor books. So, you know, there's that as well. Okay, Kate. All right, thank you. Yeah, the ick factor was difficult for me as well, not wanting to change the ages of these historical people. And I guess to maybe spoil my own book a bit, I I think I decided maybe cowardly, maybe wisely to sort of not have them consummate the marriage for reasons that actually I think are historically plausible. It turned out that they were, they actually separated for several years after this point. And so I just decided to sort of dodge the ick factor. And I had the same issue actually with the flashbacks that are in her previous marriage when she was, she was basically sent to her previous husband when she was like nine. And then she was married when she was 12, which is horrific. And he was in his twenties. And so I struggled there as well with the flashbacks. And there's something so strange about historical fiction, about real people trying to sort of decide how much trauma to inflict on someone who existed, you know? And so I think there, I also found a way to dodge it in ways that I hope are true to the, you know, character development. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really interesting. I think, well, firstly, I, I want to read the whole book whenever you're done. So we can kind of get into this and, and figure out how much ick is the right amount of ick. Like, as you said, I mean, it's it's reality. It's not our reality. It was someone's reality. So so yeah, I can't advise at this stage, but but I definitely want to read more so, so I can let you know. Yeah, thank you. And then the other Matilda. So this first wedding scene, the way that I've done it is sort of, it's a long, I don't know what you'd call it, technically, but it's sort of the scene is going to span several chapters and sort of be the catalyst for some flashbacks and some exposition and different characters are going to talk to her at the wedding that allows different sort of information to come out. So maybe 20 minutes later in real time, but I think it's one or two chapters later in, you know, book time, she'll meet Stephen and talk to him. And also then the other Matilda will show up and they'll have a conversation. And then there'll be some 
action involving the other Matilda as well. So she'll show up in this scene, but not immediately in the pages. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I think, especially with the title, right, the other Matilda, there's a sense of rivalry. So the faster that we meet her, or at least see her from across the room, the better. Because whether it is a perceived or unknown rivalry or how we imagine it to be, yeah, her showing up sooner rather than later in some capacity, I think would be would be interesting. That's a really good point that seeing her across the room might be something we could do on even the first page to sort of... Yeah, and I I think there's so many ways to think about it, right? Like it could be in juxtaposition of her physically. I don't know if they look the same or different intellectually age, right? Like, again, we're talking about this book is about power struggles and how different women exist, right? So, and at this period of time, what did women have to offer, right? And what is she offering that this Matilda is not? So I think there's some interesting things we could play with as early as possible. Just something I want to add there as well is something that's going to be vitally important early on is their impressions of each other, you know, because you're going to be revealing in each of these characters' viewpoints who they are themselves. But remember how the other woman views them is going to be really integral as well to this kind of novel. So, you know, not just seeing her across the room, but forming an impression about her. Same when we go to the other Matilda's viewpoint she should have an impression whether it's right or wrong or whatever the case may be is about the other Matilda and just while we keep saying the other Matilda I'm thinking how tough this is going to be for you to make sure in each character's viewpoint that the the reader knows which Matilda we are dealing with so how how are you going to address that Kate to really really differentiate them besides you know putting their their name and their last name at the top of the chapter Yeah, that's a great question, Bianca. And that's something that I've struggled with kind of in writing this. I really like the fact they're both named Matilda. I think that has a lot of promise, but it's something that I think is sort of, it sounds so irritating to read a book where both main characters have the same name. Like, why would you do that? And I've read other novels that are about these people or at least mention them and they always change one of the names to a similar name or to a different language just to make it less confusing. How about Um, a nickname? Maybe one of them just has, you know, a a nickname that they've been known as since a child, you know, Matty or I don't know, just just something that's going to help there in terms of the differentiation. Yeah, that's that certainly could help. Right now, the main POV is the first person Empress Matilda POV and the third person POV is the other Matilda which is, you know, a bit of a kind of a structural cue, but it also might make the other Matilda's POV less appealing if it's not first person. So I may have to kind of keep playing with that and see if that's the right way to do it. I mean, not necessarily. If you do third person super close, remember, there's a way to write third person close that it actually can sometimes feel closer than first person because the narrator even knows things about this character that they themselves may not even know, you know. So I think you've been smart there in terms of doing first person and third person. And I think if you do a third person super close, that will really help. And, you know, that nickname as well might might help as well. I just want to come back to how these two Matildas are going to interact. So in the query letter, you describe the other Matilda as radiant and adorable. And we don't really have too many cues about our Empress Matilda. So I was thinking in this scene where it's like it's Empress Matilda's wedding. If a servant or somebody comments on the other Matilda, right, to be like, we are now comparing Matildas, right? We're setting up this this dichotomy of like, there's one Matilda, and then there's the other, which one is the other Matilda, right? Who is the main character of this story, which Matilda is going to be 
the one that has the legacy of the Matilda. Do you know what I'm trying to say? So I think right away we have to establish like other people are talking about the other Matilda, even though it's Empress Matilda's wedding, other Matilda's there. You know what I mean? That actually goes so well, Carly, in terms of Jessica Brody's Save the Cat writes a novel, because she says that in Act One, there should be a secondary character who says something that actually sets up the whole theme for the novel. And so your suggestion works perfectly in line with that, because this whole thing is about, you know, the whether it's competition or whatever between the two women. So having a, a secondary character say something along those lines definitely achieves that goal. And it's also like a modern conundrum, which is like we have this theory even with modern women, like there can only be one woman at the top, right? And so, again, modern themes are coming through. Anyway, as I could talk about this book forever because I think they're, I've only read five pages, right? And I think you're setting up something really, really interesting here. So, so well done, you. Thank you. That's very helpful. And yeah, I think I, that's given me an idea that I might want the young husband, Jeffrey, to say something about the other Matilda. And that can really piss our Matilda off. Yeah. Like what is the other hurt. Matilda younger? Is the other Matilda closer to his age? Because I think that They're could about be interesting. the same age. In, I mean, I could, in real life, but I could I could change that. I know. I was just thinking like, what if it it looks like that other Matilda would have been a better match for him, but he was he right. ended up with Empress Matilda. Right. Anyway, I'm just spitballing here. Like she's obviously yeah. married. Just, just well, I think that yeah, the physicality yeah. is that I think our Matilda is kind of, she's really tall for a woman and she has kind of severe features, or at least she perceives herself that way. And the other Matilda is very sort of, you know, matronly and plump and sort of beautiful and glowing and, you know, kind of all these very feminine characteristics. And so maybe that's what the men point out is, you know, oh, she looks like such a great wife. Yeah, because um, the other thing is like, they're going to be expected to make heirs, right? And if she's 27, she's perceived to be old. Mm-hmm. And so, and if the other one's very matronly looking, that's presumably she looks like she's more able to have children, right? And like, mm-hmm. that's, you know, the perceptions of the time. So, so anyway, yeah, I, I think you're, I think, I think all the groundwork's there, right? I think you just got to pull the, pull the lever on things. Hey, thank you so much. Wonderful. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us again and for taking time out on Thanksgiving. We appreciate that. Thank you, Kate. It was so nice to get to know you. Before we head off for the day, I just want to remind everybody that we have started a newsletter, a shit no one tells you about writing newsletter. You can sign up for it right on our website, the podcast website. And as a kind of thank you to signing up for the newsletter, I have recorded myself doing a keynote talk. So as soon as you sign up for the newsletter, you'll get a kind of I think it's around 18 minute webinar from me of me recording a talk that I've done. And it's all about kind of author brands and literary community and what we can do as authors and creative individuals to further ourselves in the literary community. So please enjoy that webinar from me once you sign up for the newsletter. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, let's go to today's guest. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one month language course. Think about the cost of one hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you what writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June, with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's episode is sponsored by mylifeinabook.com. This is probably the most thoughtful gift I've ever come across for parents or grandparents for the winter holidays as families get together to celebrate. It's a powerful way to connect emotionally with them, preserve their most precious memories, and show them that you really care. And best of all, it's an instantaneous gift. I've tried it with my own mother, Caroline, and she loved it. Every week, My Life in a Book lets you choose from a list of thought-provoking questions or even write your own that gets sent to your relative by email. Your relative writes their answer and can choose to add a meaningful picture. This happens every week and then at the end of one year, all their stories get combined into a beautiful keepsake book that can store your relative's memories forever and pass them on to future generations, which is printed and sent to you. You can request as many copies as you want and even get them in audio format as well. And you know how much we love audio content over here on the pod. With mylifeinabook.com, you can give 
those you love most a personal gift that tells them they're meaningful to you and all future generations. To save $10 off your first purchase, use discount code ABOUTWRITING10. That's ABOUTWRITING10 to get $10 off mylifeinabook.com. Hi, everyone. We're lucky enough to have two guests joining us today. Amber and Danielle Brown both graduated from Ryder University, where they studied communications and journalism and sat on the editorial staff for the On Fire Literary Journal. They then pursued a career in fashion and spent five years in NYC working their way up, eventually managing their own popular fashion and lifestyle blog. Amber is also a screenwriter, so they live in LA, which works out perfectly so Danielle can spoil her plant babies with copious amounts of sunshine. Amber and Danielle, welcome to the show. Hi. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. So for our listeners, you can't see what I'm seeing. Amber and Danielle are twins, and it is pretty amazing to be looking at the two of them right now as I'm chatting with them. Right. So will one of you please give our listeners an overview of what the book's about? Remember, listeners, I normally read you the flap copy at this point, but I have misplaced my glasses, and Amber and Danielle are going to do this for me. Yes. So Brandy Maxwell is living her dream as an intern at the prestigious Manhattan fashion house, Simon Hansen. And we like to say you could think of Tom Ford, except living the dream looks more like scrubbing puke out of couture dresses worn by hard partying runway models and putting up with constant microaggressions from her white colleagues who think her braids don't fit in with the culture as Simon Hansen. But Brandy snags an invite to an exclusive party at the home of Simon himself, And she's really excited to meet his daughter, Taylor, an influencer that she follows on social media and she loves her taste. But at the party, she accidentally overhears something that she can never unhear and her life shatters. And so Taylor has everything. She's close to losing it all. Her dictator of a father, who, as far as she's concerned, is responsible for her mother's death, has threatened to donate her entire inheritance to a wildlife charity if she fails her next drug test. And to make things worse... He's about to marry someone who's practically Taylor's own age, which jeopardizes her stake in her father's fortune. So Taylor wants the money that's rightfully hers. Wouldn't it be terrible if something happened to Simon? And all she needs is the perfect person to take the fall for the death. Amazing. Thank you. Dun, dun, dun. Now, okay. So as you were saying that, you said Simon Hansen. Is that right? Okay. So here we go. I've got the advanced reader copy in which it's Simon Van Doren. Now, what I love is finding out these kinds of things, where things change and why they need to change. And for our listeners, this happens all the time. You'll get a advanced reader copy that's got certain names. And when the book comes out, a whole bunch of stuff has changed. So can we just tackle that before we go into the rest of it? Sure. So this is actually kind of funny because yeah. we kind of disagreed on this. So, and, and also just to be fair, to let everyone know, I just said it wrong. <laughs> I was actually reading the old copy. Yeah. The actual name is Van Dorn. Yeah. And the original name was Simon Hansen, but Taylor Hansen is actually a musician. big musician. Um, we didn't know that. Like, I'm not a fan of rock or anything like that. So when our editor, like, realized this, she's like, yeah, we should probably change it. So we said, yeah, let's just change. Like, we didn't want to change Taylor because we really like that name. So we're like, let's just change the last name. And Amber came up with Van. Well, we came up with a few. Well, and then you really liked Van Doren, and I was like, eh, I don't really like that. But to be fair, also, Van Doren is what I put, like, when we were just blue-skying the whole story, that's what I wanted to be from the beginning. Yeah. So we went back to the original, and mm-hmm. we it was a long debate. She didn't think Van Doren yeah. sounded like We had to ask Van. our editor to break the break the fight. 
because yeah. <laughs> I didn't like it. But I actually like it now. It makes sense. I was about to say, I'm so glad it is Van Doren because I loved Van Doren. So I'm on team Van Doren. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> right. So here's the thing. The two of you writing this book together, just listening to the two of you chatting, hearing the energy you have, the chemistry you have is amazing because for me, I cannot imagine writing a book with someone. It just, it, I write by myself and I get to make all my own damn decisions and feeling like I need to run things past somebody else, I would find incredibly frustrating. Now, I know you guys are twins and you probably had to do this your whole life, but still, a creative endeavor is different. So can you take us through from when the two of you decided to write a book together and what that process looked like? Yes. So that's also a funny story because, Amber speaking, I told Danielle, I don't know, when we were like, 14, 15, when we first discovered that we wanted to be writers, I was like, I'm not writing a book with you. <laughs> and I held on to that. We're 32 now. I held on to that for a really long time because I felt like I didn't want to mix it. I didn't want to mix, you know, us because like we're sisters, we're going to fight. Like we kind of have like what, two big fights a year, something like that. And little spats in between. And I just felt like writing together, like you said, it's a creative endeavor. So we have really strong opinions. We have strong opinions about everything, especially our writing. And we wrote separately for what, like I say, eight years, yeah, 10 years. And to be fair, our process really didn't go like that. We, yeah, we yeah. didn't run things by someone yeah. and we kind of wrote individually and then worked on each other's writing. Yeah. We, we worked in drafts. So if I wrote the first draft, she'll read it over and then change stuff. We or, well, we had to, we had to develop a system. Yeah, we had to develop we, system. We used Google Docs to write notes. And I think to each other. the first, like, pass of this book, we had over, what, 1,100 something crazy comments. And so we would just write, I don't like this word. And we came up with a system of, if you say you don't like something, you have to give a suggestion. <laughs> so you can't just say, this sentence doesn't make sense. You have to say, this sentence doesn't make sense. How about we do it like this? How about we take this word out? You have to come up with a solution. Or the person is going to feel attacked and yeah. they're going to feel like, okay, well, I don't know what to do. They're going to get frustrated. So that's something we worked out. We actually had maybe like two really, really huge fights. But now that we're working on the second book. Yeah, the second book was a breeze super, compared to the first book. Super because smooth. we figured out how to communicate with each other and how to critique each other without hurting each other's feelings and making each other feel like, okay, you're not doing what's supposed to be done. Yeah. And I would say, so yeah, it's first draft. Someone does the first draft and that's pretty much the more outliney, not necessarily outline, but I call it outline because it's just like what? Hitting all the beats. The, yeah, hitting the beats in the dialogue. And the other person will flesh it out and we keep going back and forth. Yeah, until we get to a place where we both like it. Yeah. And just on the positive side, I do think once we blended both of our voices together, it became so much better. Like it's so dynamic. Yeah. So- Two things you've said there really interest me. So, I mean, this book, for our listeners, we've got a dual POV novel here. We've got Brandy, who works for this prestigious fashion house, and then we have Taylor, who is the Van Doren daughter. So, in my mind, it would have seemed really logical, because you write each of them in the first person, to have, like, Amber do one voice, Danielle do the other voice. Was that something you even considered, or you were like, hell no, we're not going to do it that way? Yeah, I don't think we considered it because when we first started it, it was like we talked out the entire plot of the story literally on the couch at like 8 a.m. for like three, four hours. And so we like, yeah, this is cool. Let's just actually write this out. And so I don't know. We never said like, you do this and I'll do this. We just like well, said we worked in drafts. And 
I'm also a screenwriter. So sometimes my process is to just vomit out whatever I can get out there on the page. So what I did was kind of write a script that Danielle then took and fleshed out and made a book. <laughs> yeah. And we kind of had little, I would say, little sessions where we would stop. Okay, look. Yeah. I'm and discuss the characters, discuss the plot point and how we're going to beef it out to make it a novel and stuff like that. But because also I feel like Danielle said, we, we both have individual writing voices, but then we collided and made a new one. And I guess that's kind of how we looked at the characters too. Like I might've seen Brandy as a certain thing and she might've seen Taylor as a certain thing, but we had to talk everything out, get on the same page and then attack it. And then I I do think for the most part, we did agree on the character, like both Brandy and Taylor. It was like instantly, as soon as we said something, the other was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this, this, this. And we pretty much agreed on all the character stuff. So, well, yeah, in terms of like who they are. But how does that translate on the page? Mm-hmm. I feel like if we would have separated, we would have wrote something totally different. Like, you know what I'm saying? If, yeah. if I would have wrote Brandy and Taylor by myself, we could have compared and be like, wow, that's two different stories. But, or two different takes on the same mm-hmm. story. Yeah, yeah, that kind of synergy is is just amazing. And what you were saying, Amber, now about scripts. I mean, in terms of script writing, correct me if I'm wrong. I think like the final script of a movie is normally about like 80, 80 pages or something. Or what is that? That would be kind of a really shorter movie. I would say, so the max you want to do is 120 pages. But nowadays with streaming and stuff, that's not really that common. I would say your sweet spot is 107 to 110. Right. So that is very much, much more condensed to what you're expecting from a novel where you want your 320 roughly sort of pages that translates to your 850,000 words. So yeah, it's like you writing this kind of blueprint and then Danielle's really fleshing it out to get the other stuff in there. Something that I often say about my own writing and I say on the show is that I write from a place of rage. Rage fuels my writing. Things that piss me off are the things that find the way into my stories. And what I loved about this book was the social commentary. It was like mic drop, mic drop, mic drop. Working in these things that I imagine piss you guys off about the world, but making it entertaining. Let's talk about that challenge. I think this is the first time we actually drew from our own experiences when writing That's our what books. I was going to say. Because usually we've written, like I said, separately before, and usually we never bring ourselves into it because we kind of just wanted to avoid that, how like most authors put themselves in like every book they write, kind of, especially in the beginning. Well, and I don't know. Well, I kind of wanted to avoid that. Well, I would say that too, but I also, for me, it came from a place of, okay, this is how I would phrase it. I always put my emotions into things, Mm -hmm. but I didn't want to like, so this story is actually the closest to our life in the sense that when we're in Brandy's perspective, we're following a young black girl working in fashion Mm because that was our experience in the beginning of our career. And even Taylor is kind of very, very loosely based on some characters that we encountered when we worked in fashion. I kind of feel like what you're saying, because we wrote this at the end of 2020. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So after the craziness of the summer and then the pandemic going on too, And so there was some pent up rage. And also I just need to say something right now. And so let's just put it to a story. But like you said, our goal was to always keep it fun and entertaining. Those are the two, like if we had like a mood bro on the wall, those are the biggest words. We wanted to be fun and entertaining. We did say we wanted to put the social commentary in there and cultural commentary is how we like to call it. But it was never to be preachy. It was never to be very on the nose or in your face with it. It was just... That's actually Brandy's experience. 
POV is really important to us. So like her point of view mm-hmm. in this new world is what we lended our experiences to. But then we also have Taylor's perspective, mm-hmm. which we wanted to make as authentic as possible, even though that's not our experience, but we've experienced people like that. And in, in just her world, not necessarily yeah. her character, like yeah. how she does obviously bad things, but just her perspective on the world. Cause we saw like the person we worked for was kind of like that. Like she was very, I would say disconnected from reality in terms of because of her privilege, her white privilege and just her money privilege. So that's what we drew on. Yeah. And you guys succeeded amazingly because it was a page turner. I was racing through it. I was hugely entertained, but really the things that made me stop and kind of highlight were the social commentary. And this is the thing these days. I think you can be incredibly entertaining, but I think that as authors, if you have something to say about the world, you should also lean into that because I firmly believe that writing is a political act. I feel like we put pen to paper, not just to entertain. It's because we have something to say about the world. And there's things that Amber and Danielle, that you both have to say about the world that many other people have not experienced because they haven't worked in the kind of industry you have, et cetera, et cetera. And so it answers the question, why should the two of you be the ones to write the story? And I think your experience lends itself to that. Yeah, I feel like that's also something that we had to learn to come into. So mm-hmm. I would say a lot of our beginning stories that we were telling, we shied away know, from that. We shied away from it, but I don't know for me if it was so conscious. It was just, I just wanted to write fantasy stuff like, oh, what if I was a spy? I'm going to write a spy thing or whatever. Like I wasn't thinking, oh, people, readers want to connect with this person and the way that they'll connect is if it's authentic and if it's, if the person who's writing it is lending some true emotions and true experiences. And how you said you write from a place of rage. I would say I write from a place of, I don't know the exact word, but I like to write stuff that I want to read. And when I'm writing scripts, stuff I want to watch. And I feel like if there's something like, like everyone, we consume a lot of stuff, but a lot of times I'm just like, mm, that didn't really hit for me. I could see that hitting for someone else, but it didn't hit for me. And so that's what I feel like I'm trying to do. Yeah. People. And I think... I was going to say the biggest lesson that I've learned or like the biggest hump that I had to get over is like being specific is actually a good thing. Making your character specific and be making it personal. Like I used to shy away from, like I said, writing about myself or my outlook on the world or anything like that, because I thought, well, no one's going to relate to it because this is just my personal experience. But I've realized that the more specific you are and the more detailed you are and the more you make this character super original and unique more people actually relate to it because it feels like a real person. So that's what I feel like we put into this book also. Yeah. Yeah. And for our listeners, you hear Cece on the podcast all the time talking about specificity, specificity. That is what differentiates one story from another at what makes a character be singular to the point that we feel like we know them in real life and that we want to spend the rest of the however many pages with this particular character. And drawing from your life is a wonderful, rich way of doing that. This is your debut novel, right? Or or have you two published separately? No, no, this is our first. Yeah. <laughs> we had a long journey, so <laughs> this is the first one I worked out. 
Well, something that also comes to mind is because you've been writing, you said, like separately for sort of over 10 years. And I also feel like publishing is different today. I feel like the gatekeepers in publishing 10 years ago were going to be the kind of people who were going to say, oh, I like the story, but could it be more with white characters or things that more people can relate to? And again, that's why representation matters. And publishing has got a super long way to go in terms of evening out that playing field and making sure that the gatekeepers are representative of the readers and of the authors out there. But maybe that's also why you didn't want to work from your own experience perhaps 10 years ago because you weren't seeing that in terms of books. And lately we are seeing so many more books that are more deeply personal. Can you guys take us through once you finish the book, your journey to publication in terms of pitching the book to agents, etc.? What did that look like? Okay, we'll, we'll jump into the journey, but I just want to say one thing that I learned I would say a couple of books before this one was that, or I guess I should say I realized when I was writing a lot of the time, my protagonists, even though to me in my head, they were black girls or black women, I kind of made them like, I guess, neutral. I don't think people could tell all the time that they were black because I guess I wasn't making them like black, black, (laughs) like what I say in real life. I was kind of just making them like shells so they could appeal to everyone. And that's something I realized, yeah, that could be why. Because a a comment that I got a lot of time was, I didn't really connect to her. I really connected to your side characters who I feel like were all the way black. So that is something I noticed. And I was like, oh, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm just going to, they're going to be black and they're going to be true to what that experience is. And that could be a factor that played into this one. So this is the first time we wrote something together from scratch. But So we wrote this at the end of 2022, I mean, 2020, 2020. and then we went out with it on sub early 2021. And because of everything that happened, I do feel like editors and people and agents too, because that's when we signed our agent, were more open to these types of stories, Mm -hmm. stories that do have that cultural commentary, but, and also with the black protagonist and yeah, like, and, and by black writers too. So I do think timing did play because I look back at some of the other things, I did mention that one thing, but in terms of the stories and things like that, I feel like all the, especially recent Mm -hmm. stuff that we've written was just as strong. It just, this was the time that it worked out. And so, and I would say for the the, the publishing journey for this specific book was extremely fast. Like everything happened within three months. If this was the first book that we ever wrote and this happened, we will be totally spoiled. We would think, oh, what are they talking about? This is so easy. I can't say I'm glad literally that we went through all the Mm. eight years, but it did make it a lot sweeter so that because we like we went through it like I wrote 10 manuscripts in those eight years and queried most of them. And so it was a lot of rejection and failure. But this time we queried 10 to 12 people. You you sent out like five. Right. Mm -hmm. And then she got like immediately. I think it was like an hour later. She said, I got a request for a meeting. And then I was, and then she wasn't supposed to send it until later in the day. And I was like, oh my God, I got to send mine. So I rushed and I sent like 10, got an immediate response. And so we had two calls scheduled. And this was a, for this the was next a Friday. Day. Yeah. Or yours, it was a Thursday. This was a Thursday. You had your call from your agent on Friday. And, and the one that I sent out was on Monday. So we basically had two offers within four days. And then- then we signed about two weeks later. Then we did a few edits, few edits that took about a month and a half. And then we went on sub and then we was on, we were on sub for Seven a week days. and got our first offer. 
and then went into auction a few days like like i guess a week yeah. later so all in all it was like three months tops that is amazing especially after all the eight years of struggle man because that is the thing so many people would have given up in those eight years so many people have been like oh i can't deal with all this rejection it's doing my head in this is not for me so then when i hear the success story after all of that it just gives me goosebumps and it just makes me so freaking happy because it's like the stars aligned but you wrote a phenomenal phenomenal book so for our listeners one of the pov characters in terms of so we have Brandy and Brandy's lovely. Like you can get on board with her. You understand her struggles, but Taylor to write such a freaking unlikable character, man, like this woman was, you know, I don't like to use the B word unless I'm using it affectionately with my friends and we call ourselves that, but she was, and I was just like, man, I hate her. I freaking hate her, but she was so compelling and I still wanted to keep reading. And you guys managed to humanize her, which is something. And we've said on the podcast, you can have a really unlikable character, but if you give them vulnerability, if you make them vulnerable, readers can get on board. So so did you two really struggle to get into that? Or was it during those three hours you were like, okay, well, she's the B word, but also she struggled a bit. How did you guys get to the essence of her? Well, to be, <laughs> it's funny because first of all, it was a lot of work to show her human side, not in the way that, so I feel like we, from the jump, always saw her as a full person. We never looked at her as a villain. We saw, we put ourselves in her shoes. And if this was us, how would, and we had her privileges, we had her lifestyle, we had her family structure, you know, all of that. And we said, how would we probably act? And so we always saw her human side. We always saw her vulnerability. It's just, she needed to show people that she has a heart <laughs> and, and all that. But it was so like, well, my point is, so since we saw it, we thought it was coming across on the page. But we worked with our agent and then subsequently our editor to really hone in and show who Taylor was mm -hmm. all the way around, show her as a three-dimensional person, because we didn't want her to come off as like this cartoon villain. Because yeah. we, we did two rounds of edits. Like our agent basically came back and said, yeah, I think you should, like she had a few suggestions, like change this around, change this around, because she's coming across too, just too evil, too early on. So we did a few edits, but then when it was our editor's turn, she was just like, no, <laughs> she was like, no, it's, she's coming across too harsh here. She's coming across too harsh here. And then, so what we actually did was like one of the little tidbits that we did was because May's character is actually pretty much the bad influence on Taylor. Like Taylor has her own issues, but May is always like just bringing out the worst in her. So we kind of took a few of her like really bad jokes or, um, just offhanded comments and we gave it to May. So it, when you read the book, you, like May is actually coming across worse than her. Even though that's how it originally was, we had to like Show take it. specific lines, specific jokes and give it to May. So Taylor wouldn't seem as bad. But yeah, another thing that we did was we definitely added in a flashback scene. If you remember that one, so we could show where her actual pain was coming from. Like it was important for it to actually be on the page versus just, you know, her referencing it herself, because then you can actually experience it with her and experience where all of her hurt and pain and trauma is coming from. Yeah. And that was the perfect example of using backstory really well to move the present story 
forward because we always say on the podcast, backstory pulls the story back. It puts a break on everything and it slows the forward momentum. But this scene that we saw, and I don't want to ruin it for, for our um, listeners, go and get the book. Some It's called Someone Had to Do It. You have to go read the book, especially if you're working on a morally questionable main protagonist, you know, a main character. But that reveal happened at the exact moment when we needed to see it to understand her behavior. It wasn't just some random thrown in right at the beginning. It was perfectly, perfectly timed. And that's the important thing when you're putting in backstory for context is that it needs to add to our understanding of that character in that particular moment so that we can move forward with them. Last question for you both, because we've somehow managed to run out of time. When you were busy deciding on which agent to go with and which publisher to go with when it went to auction, most of the time when it goes to auction, you go with whoever gives you the most money. But when it comes to the agent, what was your criteria in deciding? And am I wrong? Did you did you not go with the publisher who gave you the most money? <laughs> So start spoil- with the agent. <laughs> no, start with the agent. Okay, so with the agent, the first person who offered was the literally the first email I sent. Yeah. And that's who we went with. And it was because before we even sent queries out, that's who I kind of wanted. So I was hoping the call would go great. And of course, that she would love it. And she was actually not the biggest agent that we queried. Yeah, not the biggest overall. She does own the agency that we did go with. But the other person that we had a call with was really lovely, really nice woman. She She's loved really, the story. really passionate about it. Yeah. And so if I will tell you the thing that really tipped me off was the first agent, she had way more editorial notes. And I know a lot of people might be scared by that, but I was like the other, the other woman she wanted, she said, I think it's great. I think we could basically do a few tweaks and then we could go right out like a few line tweaks. And I was like, well, for my career, I like, I like people to be critical of my work, even if I don't always agree at first. I want to at least hear some other opinions because I can be, you know, really close to the manuscript. And so the fact that she had so much more edits, I was like, yeah, I, and ex- go I would say especially this experience, because so before we would have had a lot of beta readers or even a friend or something look at stuff this time. We didn't. Yeah. Um, we, we didn't just, send it to anyone. We just wrote it ourselves did a couple of drafts ourselves and not even a lot. Like we, maybe, I don't know, maybe that could be a factor in why this one worked out, but I, maybe we over edit or, you know, tweak things because we kind of just did like what two solid real drafts, a polish and mm-hmm. then send it out, which I was really scared about, but we were also kind we, of, we, we finished it and then we sat on it for literally like, I think it was like 30 days. And then it was like January, like towards energy. And I was like, I don't care. Let's just send it out. And Amber was like, okay. And that's literally what, just sent that's it out. why I said only five. <laughs> You've yeah. been using some. But the publishing deal part. So we actually went with the second offer we got, which was, they ended up being the same. So our agent negotiated. So it ended up being the same. It wasn't a money thing we had. It, um, it was also the same thing. Well, it wasn't really the same because, well, one, it was only a one book deal. And the second one was a two book deal. But then she, they got, she got it up. Well, yeah, she got it up. But That's what I'm saying. So um, it ended up being, it wasn't like a money. It was going to be the same money for two books. And so, but the reason we ended up going with the one, the second one was because we didn't agree with the editorial notes of the first one. So they kind of just wanted, basically it would change, I would say 50% of the book. And we just didn't think like, sure, that would have been a good book, but that's a different book. And Mm -hmm. we wanted to publish the book that we had written. And that's so important for our listeners. You are the creator of this work. And yes, you have to be open to feedback from people. You have to be prepared to work and polish and improve. But when your vision really clashes with the vision of someone else, 
you the person who gets to decide which vision is going to win out. Amber and Danielle, we wish you so much success with this book. For our listeners, please go out and get it. I devoured it in like two days and it was absolutely amazing. I wish you both so much success with this and good luck with the with the second book. Thank you, Thank you so, so much. This fine. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course. Use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. 
Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.